teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. I want to tell you all that having been involved in loving men's ministry, there isn't anything that warms my heart any more than Eric Reed. I really, we're blessed to have someone who is as called as he is to uh, men's hearts. And uh, I pray for his family, I pray for him, and I encourage all of you to do that too, because the last thing Satan wants is for men to rise up for him, for the Lord. And uh, I just, I encourage you to do that and pray for him. I got some questions I wanted to ask before we got started. Um, how many people, is this your first time here, anybody? Okay, good, We're talking to home folk. Um, and you don't have to raise your hand, so I'm really not going to know the answer. I know that. I've been around a long time. But these are interesting things that even if you don't share with me, I still want you to think about, okay? Um, how many of you have gotten to know new guys since you came here? Okay. How many of you always sit with a new guy? How many of you sit with the same guys all the time? How many have met outside this class with some of the guys you've been meeting with? That's cool. That's cool. That's what it's all about. What I'd like to do um, is tell you a couple of stories uh, that I think kind of are setting my mind for this. When Eric and um, Emily called and asked if I would be interested in doing this, I, I love to teach, and I haven't taught a lot in a while. And so I've enjoyed coming out and speaking when I get the opportunities. And when he, I'd been through some of the warrior class and stuff, so I, I knew the concept. And when he was telling me he wanted to talk about warriors and heroes, I decided to go to chapter 11, Hebrews. And uh, I just wanted to find somebody that nobody knows or not, that most people don't know well. And uh, just to see what God wanted to show me there. You know, just not being, because I, there's, I, I used to teach, when I would teach the Old Testament, I talk about how much I love the Old Testament. Well, I love the New Testament. I love all of it. I mean, it's good. I love concordance I'm not all that crazy about. But the rest of the Bible is really, really important to me. And um, so I, as I was preparing for this, I don't know how many of you use the, um, the devotional that the church has. Anybody use the daily devotional? Hey, Brother Bill. At the bottom of it, on the page, every page, it says, walk closer with God. And I'd never noticed that. And one of the key phrases about my friend Enoch that we're going to talk about is that he what? He walked with God. Yeah. So I thought, okay, Lord, because that's how he kind of confirms to me when I'm on the same page that he's on. And I like that. I appreciate that. And I just want to share that with you because I want you to start living in a life of expectation if you're not him to show you that, yes, I see what you're doing, and yes, I'm encouraged with what you're doing, or no, I would like you to turn and go another way. There's verses in the Bible where it says that he speaks to us in a small, still voice, and I've always envied that group of people. He speaks to me with a two-by-four in his hand. He slaps me upside the head, and I go, oh, okay, there I am. Hebrews 2.1 says, we must pay more careful attention so that we don't drift away. 
And I told my kids when I was raising them that I never woke up one morning and thought I'd screw up my life. But there were mornings that I woke up and I decided I wouldn't do such, such and such and such and such until by the time the end of a month or so was, I was way far away from where I had wanted to be. So I tell them, we just pay attention. We pay attention to where we are. We don't want to drift away. Satan's plan is that you will drift away. And um, I joined this church when I was 26 years old, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Marianne and I had got married in 1975. We dated, uh, met in college. She was a blind date. And we've been married a little over 40 years. And um, it's been amazing. It's absolutely a blast to be married to someone that I've known since she was 19. We met in college, and I was two years older. She was a freshman. I was a junior. Boy, I knew everything. She knew nothing. It was a, very, it was a great relationship. <laughs> it has certainly switched from that, okay? I now know nothing, and she knows everything, but that's okay. God's that way, and that's the way that he works. But I... I went to law school right after we graduated from Sam Houston. I graduated in 75. She graduated in 77. I moved to Houston in 75, got married. I started work down at the courthouse in one of the uh, court offices down there, and I started law school at night. And at that time, there's South Texas College of Law, which is the law school here, was pretty much 100% of night school. So I could go to work 8 to 5, go to school at 5.30, and come home at 10 or 10.30 every night. And I did that for three years straight. Worked through the summers, and uh, at the end of three years, I graduated. And that had been my plan. I had made that plan when I was a young kid, and people told me how good I could talk, and I ought to be a preacher. I said, well, if you're not going to be a preacher, then you be a lawyer. I said, oh, okay, that one sounds okay. I loved the Lord, and as a young child, I used to teach Sunday school in my backyard to the kids that couldn't go to church when I was growing up, six and seven and eight-year-olds. And I would put... We'd put clothespins on our clothes and put towels on our back, and we'd walk the streets and play like we were walking the streets of gold. I absolutely loved Jesus. There had been some crises in my life along the way that not everybody knew in my family, and I just kind of was tight with this Jesus that I heard about. And I, I had people, my parents had me nurtured in that way so that I knew about who he was. But I have to tell you, one of the things that I've shared in... Uh, that's real important to me, 1979 is a milestone in my life, and I'll tell you about it in just a minute. Mary and I were married in 74. We joined this church in 79. And in 1979, I learned to hate sin. Up until that time, I loved Jesus. But I didn't, I didn't, I can't say particularly, I just didn't at all really hate sin. If I could get by with sin and no one would know that I had been involved in sin, then I participated in sin. That's just kind of how my life was. I grew up in a small town, and there weren't enough good guys and bad guys to go around, so some of us had to do double duty, and I was just one of those, and I volunteered to do it. And uh, if you went to the First Baptist Church in Crockett, they would, where I grew up, I mean, I played Jesus when we had a play for Jesus, and I was in the choir, and I was faithful in Sunday school. I grimaced every time I had to put my dime in the envelope, even though it said he loves a cheerful giver, and I'll never forget that, that I grimaced. I didn't want to give. I only got a dollar a week. And I want to give my dollar, 10% of my dollar to the Lord. I didn't. I didn't like that idea. And so it's things like that as I think back, the seeds that were in my mind. At the same time, he loved me, and he was talking to me, and he was encouraging me. But I was not his child, and I, I believe that strongly now. But in 1979, after we were married, I graduated from law school. Marianne was pregnant with Gerald Altick's wife, right, and my daughter Kay. 
And I had, when I graduated from law school, I had, I mean, I'd gone straight through and I'd worked full time and she'd worked part time and gone to school full time. And I mean, we were, we had really done it. But that was the highest I'd ever really seen that I would be a lawyer. Got hired by the DA's office here. Johnny Holmes, uh, Carol Vance was who hired me. Then Johnny Holmes became the DA. And I loved it. It was a great job. And I could stand there and write his indignation and all those kinds of things. It was wonderful. I'm not much of an athlete, but I did like to drink. And um, so <laughs> guys started playing softball. And guys would hang out and play softball. And I thought, well, then that sounds like a lot of fun. I can do that, too. I mean, I used to play right field. I'm a good hitter. Put me in right field, and I'll knock, play, knock home runs for you. So I, I got involved in the softball craze as it was starting. And I want to be like Dick Van Dyke. And Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore had martinis every day when he got home from work. If you've ever watched that show, it was just, that was my world. That's what I wanted. I got a coat, and I had a pipe, and I had a martini. You know, 21 years old from Crockett. It looks kind of weird, but that's what I wanted. That was what grown up was to me. So in 79, Marianne was pregnant with Kay, just, to, just learned she was pregnant with Kay. And she decided that she did not want me to raise her daughter. And so she went and told my mama she was leaving me. She told her mama she was leaving me. And one night when I told her I was going to stay up and finish the orange juice because we had a little gin left, um, she let me know she was leaving me. And she expected me to say, don't let the door hit you, and I'll see you later. And instead what I did, I dropped to my knees, and I begged her to stay and tell her I would change. And that was November of 1979, and the next Sunday we came to church here. And when we came to church here, we were, this building um, had the three floors that it's got now. We were on the third floor of this building. There wasn't a six-story building, and there wasn't a CLC. But we couldn't even get into the classroom of people that were in the married young adult between two years of our age because there were so many people here. It was unbelievable. We stood out in the hallway, and I could hear this guy giving a testimony about quitting smoking. At the time, I smoked about two packs a day because those were the days when you smoked at work, and if you light a cigarette, you set it down, you go over here and do something, you can come back, come back and pick it up and smoke it some more. Just a different world. It was a whole different world. You were, everybody smoked, and it was, that made it okay. I mean, golly, everybody smokes. Everybody drinks. Hey, it's okay. Well, when she said that she would stay because she had gotten saved in 1977 at First Baptist Spring Branch because one of the important things to me was for her to be a Christian. I thought I was. And so I led her to the Lord, and I taught her scriptures. I could do all of those things, and I hope this is resonating with some of you because I, I think that it's important that we check where we are. James says you look in the mirror and you notice something and you walk away like you, didn't see, you don't remember what you saw reflecting. And not everybody in this room maybe, I won't say is, a Christian, okay? And we just, I know that there's not in the sanctuary, that's a larger group, okay? You and I all probably are, but maybe out there they're not. But they don't know it, okay? And they don't know it because there's not been somebody that came down and sat beside them and talked to them about it, or they haven't been hit upside the head by a two-by-four, or they didn't listen to a small, still voice. So, that's where I want to begin with because that 1979 is my defining moment, okay? 
And I want you to think there's a great song by a group you probably have never heard of called The Finding Moment. And I started to look it up and thought, no, you would, we won't do that. But trust me, there's a great song out there if you want to iTunes it, Finding Moment. It's very good. Um, but I want you to think about your defining moment because we're going to see Enoch's defining moment. This is a guy that's about 51 verses, about 91 words about him in the Bible. And I'm telling you, I've had more fun the last six weeks while I've been messing around looking at this and doing some research and different things. It has been so much fun, and I can't begin to tell you all of it, but that's okay because we'll get together another day. But right now what I want you to do um, I want you to think about a defining moment. I'll tell you about a friend of mine. Um, I, was, I taught men's Sunday school here for about 16 years, and Mary and I taught a couples class together for about eight years. And the difference, and they meet down here in the hall, and they still have the name of the class. We named it because that, the difference was also the original name for the men's ministry because Acts 4.13 says that the leaders of Jerusalem looked and they saw two of the disciples, and they knew that they were unschooled, uneducated, ordinary men. But they noticed that they were bold, had such boldness. And then it said that they remembered they had been with Jesus. So, I mean, right after I got saved, I did a lot of studying and different things. And Henry Blackaby is actually who taught me that verse, and I didn't even know it was Henry Blackaby because I just have internalized it as being my verse, my verse, my verse. But it's a verse that says to me, that being with Jesus should make a difference, okay? It should make a difference. So that was my goal. I'm teaching Sunday school. And I have, uh, in a church this size, everybody knows, if you're in a Bible study, that Bible study is where you make the connection. That's where you make your friends. That's where you get to know the people that you're going to connect with. That's where you grow, okay? Sanctuary is great. Men's ministry is great. But Sunday school, I think, is the, is the foundation for the church. So I taught guys um, and only had guys. And I, it was fun because I started off, there were four of us uh, when I was in the class and then our teacher left and we decided you know, that I would be the leader. I wasn't going to be a teacher because that was way too high a role to assume. But we went on down the road and kept putting one foot in the other, front of the other and studying and teaching. And I have done funerals, for people out of my class. I have been had kids named after me from people out of our class. It's just like a little church, you know, when you really get connected and get involved in people's lives. And I, there was one man, he and his wife were in my Sunday school class, and they were having marital problems. And he came to see me, and I talked to him and listened to him, and I could tell that he had a lot of anger, a lot of problems. So I encouraged him to go to a doctor and see a doctor. And I encouraged his wife to move out because he was doing some real kinky things. Um, and so she did. And there were some members of the class um, that thought that they would could minister them, to them. And one day, while I was at work, I heard about one of those horrible stories we hear about the guy that is driven down to his wife's office and killed his wife and killed himself. And this was a guy out of my Sunday school class that I had had in my office that week, had been talking to that week. And um, his family asked me if I would do his funeral because nobody really wanted to. And I told him, yeah, I'll do that. And um, so the wife had a funeral. I went to the wife's funeral. And then a couple of days later, I did the man's funeral. And I woke up in the middle of the night and just went in. I had a place at 
our house at the time, a little prayer bench that we had, and I had a big family kind of Bible that you didn't have to wear your glasses so I could go read it anytime I wanted to and didn't have to look for these. And so I just went and talked to God, and I said, I know there's something you want me to say, and I know that there's something that I can say, but I have no idea. Would you please tell me? And I just stayed there until I really felt him tell me that this was not his defining moment. This was his worst moment. And because there were good things in his life. And why mentally he got to that point and how they got sick and how horrible it all is. And there wasn't a large crowd. There were members of the Sunday school class and his children. He had a daughter and a son, and both of them came to that funeral as well as to their mother's funeral. And it encouraged them because they were conflicted in their mind. Is this who he always was? Is this because they had never seen that part of him before? And the reason I'm telling you that is because as men, we have the potential of running after the Lord and walking with the Lord. But we also have the, the potential to stumble, okay? And I pray your stumble isn't anything like my story I just told you. But I do hope you understand that we will stumble, and we do stumble. And the important thing about stumbling is getting up. It doesn't matter how many times you fall down, as long as each one of them you get up and you keep going and you move on. We're not perfect. I loved it. used to tell the guys when I would teach them that don't ever get your eyes on me, okay? Because that's easy to do. It's easy to kind of, well, that's my Holy Spirit. That's my Jesus. That's who will tell me, and I don't have to read the Bible, and I don't have to this, and I don't have to that. And I said, don't do that, because I could fall any moment, and then it would devastate you. But he will never fall, okay? And so I encourage you to welcome that. Embrace that. Don't fear that. Because he says that he will be with us. Let's look at today's lesson. Talk about it for a few minutes. Um, the first thing on there was one of those things that we're not going to discuss. But I'd like you to read and think about it in your quiet time sometime. You don't have to talk. This in the table talk when even. But um, do you feel most loved by God because he makes so much of you? Or because he frees you by salvation to make so much of him? I think pride is probably the worst thing in the world for men. Because pride masquerades in a couple of ways. Pride is, I'm better than you. But pride turned all the way down to its lowest level is, you're better than me and I don't like it. So, I think sometimes guys get caught up that God loves me so much and he's doing these, these things for me. As opposed to realizing that we weren't created for him to love us. We were created for us to love him. I want you to look with me, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to, just glimpses is all we're going to get to do on this thing. Um, the Hebrews chapter, or Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Heroes of Faith. Um, Enoch is the second in the line that's listed in that group of names and groups of people. Um, it talks about faith, it begins defining faith, but I want to take you to something because faith so many people think in the Old Testament that there wasn't, faith wasn't an attribute, that that wasn't a goal, that it was just works, and that, you, you know, and that the, the Christ's death showed that you know, he paid the price once and for all because the sacrifices couldn't be done to keep people close enough to God and that sort of thing. And, and that's true. There's no question about it. But in chapter 11 alone of Hebrews, you will see that people of the Old Testament 
are named, and along with their name it says, and they were found righteous. And that insinuates that they are going to be in the presence of God as much as anybody who has believed in Jesus Christ on this side. Okay? And I just want you to think about that and realize that. And Habakkuk 2, 4 is, a, is actually a scripture that the Lord said to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a very interesting book. And there's this um, dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. In 2, 4, the Lord says, the righteous ones will live by faith. And then it's quoted in three different times in, uh, the, in the New Testament. In Romans 1, 17, it says, for... In God's righteousness is real from faith to faith, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Galatians 3.1 says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 says, But my righteous ones will live by faith. And if they draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And I want you to, that pleasure in him is something I want you to remember. Now we're going to jump into what's on your sheet, and it's Hebrews chapter 11. The definition is verse 1. Somebody read that if you would. That's something really and truly important to understand. Number 2 says that through faith the people in the days of old, referring to the Old Testament patriarchs, the New Living Translation I like a little, so I've put it here, but I used a lot of Holman uh, also. It says they earned a good reputation. And Holman, it says, for by it they were approved. Verse 3 is one that is for a whole other time, but it's one of the most important, pivotal things in my life. Also, I'm a young earth creationist, and that may just drive you crazy. I really believe the earth is uh, about 7,000 years old, and I really believe that they were 24-hour days, and I really believe all of those kinds of things. And part of the reason that I feel real comfortable to boldly tell you that today, just because if you ever have read verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, and that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And we'll talk about it some other day, but that verse was pivotal in my being confident enough to have that belief and to grow into that belief and to be involved in that. Verse 4 says that by it was by faith that Abel... Now, Abel, um, Adam and Eve had three, three, three sons that we know their names. What are their names? Anybody know? Cain, Abel, and Seth. Okay. Verse 4 says, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain. This was one of those things that when I was an early believer in reading, it really was confusing to me. What's the difference between bringing grain and bringing meat, okay? I mean, I knew from studying in, in Exodus and Leviticus that there's grain offerings that the priests make and use, but that's not what God required at the time of Abel and Cain. He required a blood sacrifice, okay? And Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain brought a grain sacrifice. God was not pleased with Cain. And what did Cain then do? He killed Abel, okay? So you got three people to populate the world, and one of them is dead and one of them is bad, okay? So Adam and Eve do what any family does. Let's try again. And they did, and they had a son named Seth. 
So Seth is the line that Enoch comes from. Verse 5. It was by faith that Enoch was... Oh, no, no. Yeah. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. Before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. Remember earlier I, when I was at that Hebrews 10, 38... It said, if a person doesn't have faith, God said, I'll have no pleasure in him. Faith is real important. I want us to leave here today thinking that faith is very important, and I want to understand how to exercise it more in my life. Okay? I want to walk that more. And that's, that's one of the goals that we're after. Verse 6, it goes on to say, and it is impossible to please God without what? Yeah, it's impossible to please him. How many want to please him? Okay? Yeah. I mean, there's some things that are just easy to check. Okay? How many want to go to heaven? Yeah. Uh, how many will go to hell? No. I mean, just there are things that we can all agree on. It's impossible to please him without faith. Therefore, get faith. Now, I want you, the name Enoch, because names are so important in the grouping that we're looking at right now. Enoch meant dedicated or devoted. Okay? We're going to get to the story of Genesis, uh, to Enoch, by looking in Genesis chapter 5. So let's look at chapter 5 for just a minute. And this is the line of Seth, okay? It starts with Adam, and it says, the way that I entitled your paper says, Enoch the seventh from Adam, okay? So he's the seventh generation from Adam. These are the family records of the descendants of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created him male and female. And when they were created, he blessed them and called them man. Adam was, I'm skipping, and you'll notice that I numbered the verses, so you'll see that I'm not reading all of the verses. Number three, Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Verse four, Adam lived 800 years after the birth of Seth, and thereafter had sons and daughters. If you were to read the verses between 4 and 17, most every single verse ends, and he died. And he died, and he died. It's called the grave chapter because it, of all the heroes, it always ends up with, and he died. And God, through Moses, is through Paul, doesn't, doesn't have that kind of thing done without it being something you need to pay attention because repetition is one of the ways that God teaches us things that are important. So he wanted to point out that all these people died, and then we get to... Verse 18, and it says, Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. And if you go ahead and read 19 or 20, it'll tell you that Jared died. 21 says, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Stop for a moment. I'm going to propose to you that the birth of Methuselah was a unique defining moment in the life of Enoch. Okay? And you think, oh, Rick Cambridge, where does that come from? Well, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. One, look at it again with me in that particular verse. It says, and after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and other daughters. Go on down with me. So Enoch's life listed 365 years. Fourth, Enoch walked with God. Then he was there. No, then he was not there because God took him. All right? So it appears from looking at this, that Methuselah was a defining moment in his life, and he, 
he walked with God after the birth of Methuselah. You may say, Bridgewater, that's, that's not enough maybe. Well, let me tell you what Methuselah's name means, okay? Methuselah's name means when he is dead, it shall be sent. When it is dead, he shall be sent. It shall be sent, okay? And that's out of the Jones Dictionary of the Old Testament. I've looked this up in so many different things. There's another places where it says part of it means the tip of a spear, and it relates back to Cain, the way that Cain slew Abel and different things. And it's very interesting. And, but the key thing is, what do you know about Methuselah? Okay. Why do you think he lived the longest? What's his name? When it dies, it shall come. Okay, what was going to come? The flood. The year he died is the year of the flood. God used Enoch to warn the world it was coming. And then he used Methuselah to be the time key for when it was coming. And because he wanted his desires that all men would be what? Saved. God's desires that all would be saved. So he postponed as long as he could. And that's evidenced in the longest man that ever lives life. Isn't that something? Do you know what the days of Moses were like? I mean, the days of Noah were like? Have you ever heard that those days might come back again? When Jesus Christ, and this is the last group of scriptures on your page, the very last page, it's out of Matthew. But when he was sitting around with the disciples, and they were walking one day, and he, they mentioned the buildings, and he told them that one day the buildings weren't going to be there. And he said, well, when will these things come? And he said, as it was in the days of Noah. And he talks about how the ungodliness and the evilness and the wickedness and the hate of God's people is going to come. Okay? How bad was it in the day of Noah? What did God decide to do? A do-over. Okay? He decided to kill all but eight. Wipe them away. I think we need to pay attention to what's going on, and I think we need to pay attention in how we walk. And does the way you walk please God? These are just rhetorical questions. I'm going to tell you, I was tremendously convicted through all this, very convicted through all of this. My prayer time, I was convicted about just the depth of my prayer time, you know, that there's way too much of me discussing what I would like and way too little of me Asking him to show me, because he will show me. It's just not fair to the rest of the world how he shows me, but he know, I know that he'll do the same for you. All you have to do is ask him, and he'll show you, because he wants to show you, because he loves us, and he wants to use us to bring other people to him, and that's what it's all about. Let's look for just a moment, if you would, at the, um, when we finish the verse Verse 24, Enoch walked with God in there. He was not found. God took him. I want to give you some walked with God thoughts. Number one, walked with God assumes reconciliation. Okay? On the sheet that I gave you, there's some blanks, and the blanks are there for you to fill them in. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can. And assumes reconciliation. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Okay? 
That's what Amos wrote. And on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus had died, resurrected, and he's walking with his men, he's walking with them to tell them about what has happened and to hear what they think has happened. Okay? And he's walking with them. Rarely, in the way that we think of this walk, obviously I'm not saying that God came down and walked as Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. I'm not even saying he walked as he did with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. Okay? This is an, an illustration, and it's, that's why it's applicable for us. But when you choose people to hang out with, you typically choose people that you agree with or people that you want to be more like, okay? It assumes reconciliation. The way you get reconciled, the verse A, is saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord, believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So, saved. Second, sanctified. When my brother Eric prayed for me before I started preaching or teaching, one of the things that he said, he prayed about my sanctification. And here it is. And sanctification is one of the big issues that I wanted to bring out to you today. Because it's important that you understand what sanctification is. B says sanctification. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 3a says it is God's will that you be sanctified. Okay? A moment ago, we were talking about what pleases God. So I'm not going to ask you what sanctified means because I have time restraints. But I'm sure some of you could answer that question for me. But I'm going to tell you that sanctified and holy. God also said, I want you to be holy as I am holy. It was one of the things that drove Martin Luther crazy. Absolutely drove him crazy. How can I ever be holy? I just can never be holy. That can't happen. I can't be holy. I'm going to tell you I'm holy. Okay? You're thinking that's another example of Bridgewater's pride, aren't you? No. It's my understanding of God's word. Holy means set apart. And in God's eyes, I have been set apart for him when I became his child. And that's what holy means. Okay? There's a great study that I have taught by Bruce Wilkerson that's called Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation. It's only a four-session, and it's great. It's wonderful. One of the examples he uses is the priest comes home from work and being in the temple all day, sacrificing animals, saying, honey, this knife is dull. Do you have another knife I can use? And she said, sure, here it is. Let me get the knife drawer here. You can have this one. He takes it to work. He now uses that knife, and the first throat that he cuts with that knife, that knife is now holy because it has been set aside and used for God's purpose. Okay? It's not that it's better than everything else in the world. It's not that it has never done anything wrong. Okay? It's that it's set aside for God's purpose. Sanctification is a process. Heaven's that way. I'm here. Every day, I'm to get closer and closer and closer to God. And that's what, that's kind of what people say about Enoch, that he just kept walking and they finally reached the point that God said, come on home with me, as opposed to going back to your house. But that's what sanctification is. My question is, it comes from walking. How are you walking? What are, you, what are you planning on later on today? Maybe not this morning because it's early, but later on today, what are you going to be doing to improve your sanctification? What is it that you have lined up, planned, just like you got that to-do list of things you're going to do and you, you're organized? What do you have planned to further your sanctification? Okay. This is a great start. 
When brothers dwell together, it thrills God to death. It absolutely does. He loves brothers to dwell together. So this is a good start. Next thing, corresponding nature. Number two, corresponding nature. In John 1, 6, it says, we have fellowship with him. We can walk in darkness. We're lying, and we're not practicing the truth. Okay? We can't walk with him and be in darkness. Closeness of heart is number three. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your double-minded people. A of three is seeking him. Okay? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek him. Stop for just a minute. Seek him. Do you know that there are people right now having dreams in the Middle East of Jesus Christ? And he's coming to them, and he's revealing himself to them, and they're going to wake up in the morning, and they're going to go find someone who can tell them more. Do you know that that's really and truly happening? I've got documented. I know, I've got friends over there that that's, their, that's what they're doing right now. I've got a friend that he has led over 21 imams to the Lord. They have left their family. They have left their people. They are in hiding, many of them. They're on a list. I pray for them. It is unbelievable what's going on. It's not just that the ISIS is cutting heads off and burning people alive or burying them in cages, and none of us seem to, that doesn't seem to even get on the news. The Spirit is also moving, and people are having dreams. Seek Him. We don't have to dream. We have His Word. We have His Holy Spirit. Take advantage of the unique place that you've been placed. Humble count, uh, number four, humble countenance. Yeah, this is the two-by-four Bridgewater. Mankind, He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfully love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Confidence in him, I'm sure of this, that Christ, who has started a good work, will carry it out to completion. That's something that we can just, if you're his child, you can just take a deep breath. Thank you. It's not over yet. Thank you. I am confident in you that you will complete this in me that you have begun. James says you have to test it. If you haven't, if something hadn't begun, then you need to do something about that also. B, pressing on. I love this. I mean, I see this verse. The wind is blowing, and Paul is standing at the top of a boat, and he's going like this. And he says, I forget what's behind me. Because, I mean, there's lots of stuff behind me, and I want to forget it, okay? He said, I press on towards the goal. I haven't obtained it, but I press on. What is the goal? You got a to-do list. What is your goal? What is, what is the goal? Paul is talking about in that writing. Come on, you know this. To do God's will, to be close to God, to be God's man. I've not obtained it, but I press on. Okay? Before you go to bed tonight, reflect on what you did to press on towards God today. And it can be happening as easy as this, dropping to your knees. And you say, Lord, I want to seek you. I want to know you in a more personal way. I believe that you love me and that you have a purpose. I believe that my life can bring pleasure. But I don't expect that to be always easy. And I don't expect that to always be understood by those around me. But I thank you that I can trust you because I'm your child. And this is 
the answer that you let me give, Eric, about why I did what I did, because I'm your child, and you wouldn't bring something to me that didn't have the potential of bringing you glory. And if it's my profession that the world doesn't understand, but you do because you placed me there, you call Jesus an advocate and I'm an advocate, I trust you. And you just walk to the next step, see where you go from there. Third, trusting in him. This is, boy, this is one of my favorite verses. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit as you believe in him, okay, as you believe in him. I'm going to stop with us there. Jude is the next set of verses that we have, and Jude is the uh, like when uh, someone taught on James. I think it was, uh, Doug taught last week on James. Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus Christ, and Jude quotes from a book called First Enoch, and that's what he's quoting here. Enoch was prophesying about the future. It tells you that Enoch was known as a, um, it says, verse 14, that he prophesied. He was a preacher. He was an itinerant preacher for those next 300 years. He went everywhere. And you've got to remember, the people he's talking to are related to him as cousins or brothers and sisters because there was only three people having kids, Okay. And you think it's tough today to talk to that person in the cubicle. What if that person was your cousin, okay, your brother, your sister? Take time. I've got some great questions. If you've got time, Eric, would you come over uh, on the back page? Uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so, I think. And I'd encourage you to look at the uh, discussion questions. There's some for you to talk about at your table, okay? There's some for you to think about later on. And you've got a couple of other assignments that I've given you about thinking later on. I do, again, thank you for letting me be here. I do believe what the Lord wants for us to do is to be a mighty army together. And I believe that we've got a great leader under Eric Reed to do that. I believe that we've got a tremendous pastor under Greg Mott to be able to do that. But I think more importantly, the Holy Spirit has prepared these times because we have been raised up for now. Just like when Brother Greg's teaching about Esther, in a moment there's going to be a time when he uses the verse out of Esther where Mordecai says, who knows, but for such a time as this, you were born. God knows when you were born. He planned it. He knows where you're living. He allowed it. There's a purpose, and it's more than just living and dying. Amen. Thank you. We are a chosen generation. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Your heart's in love, the set you free in